quite unusual. Hello, hello, and welcome travelers to the Quite Unusual podcast, a podcast where we talk about all the strange things, all the paranormal things, and all the true crime things that your hearts could desire. Mm. I am Noelle. And I am Nicole. And we are your hosts. We are. Nicole. Yeah. You have been in my house for three hours and we have not recorded anything yet. I know. That's usually what we do, though. I kind of love it. We get sometimes, well, we drink. Sometimes we get too drunk. Oh, my gosh. And then we can't record. That was us last week. That was the day after my birthday. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, it's, it, there's a reason. It was my birthday. And also, we're just, like, besties, like, hanging out and, like, drinking and, like, talking about <laughs> cool stuff like dryers and, and ghosts and... Uh, Honestly, mostly appliances and fluoride. Yeah. Lately. And very terrible fires. Oh, yeah. Spoiler. Well, that's true. This week's episode, we are talking about the fire at Station Nightclub. Yeah. Nicole suggested this one, and... Well, before we talk about some fires, yeah. let's talk about our fire friend, Bob. Ooh, oh, yes. did Bef- that work? Before we get into a very sad story that's terrible, let's talk about some fun things. Like Bubberly. Like Bubberly, Angelica. Smith. Smith. Of the Slackjaw Punks. Slackjaw Punks. I was listening to them earlier, and they were talking shit about Tobey Maguire. Oh. And I almost turned it off, but instead <laughs> I wrote some hate mail. So that's coming your way, bubs, if you're listening to this one. You're the new, uh, who, who's their fan? Charlie Dillon? Oh, yeah, but I write hate mail. You write hate mail, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so we were on an episode of Slackjaw Punks. We were. We got to watch the Heaven's Gate documentary that just released on HBO Max. It was amazing. Fucking phenomenal. The director, I mean, he's like... The creme de la creme when it comes to documentary directors, would you say? He's incredible. He's so good. Clay Tweel, right? Yes. Yeah. So if you know anything about Heaven's Gate, I'm sure you do if you're listening to this podcast because, you know. You're a weirdo. You like, no. Yeah. Highly suggest it. It was, it's, it's just very well done. Very good. A lot of information. It was very good. And wow, what a treat. Bob texted us. Mm-hmm. He's like, watch this right now. We did in 24 hours, and then we yeah. were on his show, and we, got we to just talk got, about it. Yeah, it was amazing. Do some jokes, joke about how Noelle's a horse girl, but she denies. Wow. <laughs> Everyone needs to stop bringing that up right now. I know. I said it. I put it into the universe. You I created did. this tulpa of me being a horse girl. <laughs> it's not a tulpa. Like it's four real Four weeks ago, I am the tulpa at this point. <laughs> Michelle of my former self. Yeah. Yeah, so we're just going to stop that. Ready? 2021. We're stopping the horse girl discourse. Mm-hmm. Never. I don't want it. Never. Discord? Discourse. Discord is the app. Discourse? Discourse? Is that what you just said to me? Discourse. Discourse girl? <laughs> wow. Wow. I'm offended. I'm shocked. I don't even know what to say to you anymore. Well, anyways, go listen, everyone. Go listen to our episode on Heaven's Gate. And also, go listen to Slackjaw Punks because... They fucking rule. They fucking rule. If you like horror movies, if you're like flipping through Netflix and you you don't know what to watch, w- listen to Slackjaw Punks because they always have recommendations on 
all of the new releases of horror and everything so they're amazing and also their social media is hilarious so yes. go go hang out there slack job punks they're on instagram i don't know if they're on facebook we don't really go on facebook much yeah who does these no. days but anyways go listen um we are friends with them we love them so much they're amazing their show is seriously like a holy grail of amazing shows. bub has like the best radio voice in the world it's unreal in the world do you think he would do like a ringtone for me yeah probably if you asked him i'm going to he'd probably just be like horse girl damn it bub. <laughs> he absolutely would i'm gonna text him right now anyways should we get to um the other fire we're talking about yeah uh this one's a little sad it is extremely sad i cried she did about I, yeah well it was about three hours ago but it would have been about 10 minutes ago if we were on schedule yeah. On this week's episode, we are talking about the fire at Station Nightclub. Mm-hmm. Nicole suggested that we cover this week's topic, and I actually kind of forgot about this. You knew it happened? Well, when you brought it up, I started Googling, and it kind of came rushing back to me. We really? were We were very young when it happened. Yeah. But, yeah, I do remember it being on the news. Really? See, I don't remember seeing or hearing anything about this when we were young, but we were only 12 at the time, so that's probably why. But I found out about this specific event through Austin because he showed me the video. What? That's so mean. And Well, he told me about it first and that there was a video and he was like, don't watch it. Just, Just don't watch it. It's so bad. So naturally... I fucking watched it. Well, yeah, because you're you. Yeah, and it is one of the most messed up things I've ever seen in my life. So warning to anyone who is like me and you need to know everything about everything, you're probably going to listen or watch this video after you listen. And I just want to warn you, it's pretty disturbing. It's about like, what, 10 to 13 minutes long? Yeah, I'd say. It's just absolutely terrible. And we're going to tell you why in this episode. So maybe listen to the episode first before you go search out the video and then decide if you are able to handle it. I think that's a really good PSA out there. Yeah. You sent me this video Yep. and I was driving. So I get to a red light and I was like, well, let me just check this out for mm-hmm. like a second. And I had no idea what I was in for. I watched maybe 45 seconds of it, and when people started screaming for their lives, I yeah. turned it off. Yeah. And I threw my phone in the back seat, and it was messed up, man. This story makes my stomach turn. We just watched the video. Yeah, we. I made her watch it, and I will say that she cried. I cried the whole time. It was like that weird, like, stress cry thing. Yeah. I, I just can't get it out of your head. Yeah. It's like not get it out of your head. It's like so bad you can't stop watching it. Yeah. It's yeah. fucked up. So if you are squeamish in any sort of way, if yeah. any of this bothers you, which I mean, not a lot bothers me. Yeah. And this bothers the shit out of me. Yeah. So disclaimer, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Maybe skip this one. You know, if you <laughs> I, I yeah. won't be hurt. It's OK. I think the best way to actually go through this story is chronologically. Of course, like, so, like always. I think so. So let's get a little bit of background before we get to this actual fire. Mm-hmm. In July of 1946, two brothers named Casey and Henry Lada built a one-story building at 211 Croset Avenue in West Warwick, Rhode Island. This would house their bar, which 
For some reason, everywhere on the internet is calling a gin mill. A gin mill? Was it was it a gin mill or did they just call a bar a gin mill? Okay, I was super confused by this. <laughs> there was a website that I was looking at that had really good background information yeah. on this bar before the fire. And it said that the original owners opened a, quote, gin mill. It's like, oh, this is oh. obviously where they make gin, right? Yeah. Like, that's what that has to be. Right. So then I Googled it because I was like, well, I can't be, like, giving wrong information <laughs> here. So that's not at all what it is. What? Actually, it's just... A gin mill is another name for a bar or a saloon, which is super weird, right? That's very weird, and I never knew that. So thank you. This is the only time I will ever say that. (laughs) I'm never saying it again. I hate it. In March of 2000, another set of brothers named Mike and Jeff Derdarian took over the station nightclub, or I guess gin mill. (laughs) Yeah, if you want to go that route. They turned it from a bar into... Sort of a nightclub situation. Hmm. In November of the year 2000, so just later the year that they bought it, Mm -hmm. they had a regular fire department inspection. There were nine fire code violations, but somehow the nightclub wasn't given even one citation. What? The fire marshal also overlooked a highly flammable polyurethane foam soundproofing that covered the walls of the nightclub. Remember that for later. A couple weeks later, the fire marshal returned to check on the violations, and they had all been corrected. But again, he failed to notice the extremely flammable soundproofing foam all over the walls and the ceiling. Mm. The fire marshal signed off that everything was A-OK, and he just moved on. Since the building was built in the 1940s, and it was small in size, just under 4,500 square feet, I saw a couple different numbers, but we're just going to say 4,500 because it's easy. Yeah, around there. It was exempt from any sprinkler laws. The new owners were not under any obligation to put in a sprinkler system So they just didn't. So because it was built in the 40s, they didn't need to put sprinklers in? Mm Mm-hmm. That is so messed up. If something was built before this law existed, they just didn't have to abide by these codes? Yeah. That doesn't seem like a very good rule to me. No, like if a car is built before seatbelt laws, it doesn't have to have seatbelts. Really? Mm Mm-hmm. It's fucked up, right? That is so fucked up. It doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, that's stupid. I guess whatever. The station nightclub was just like any other townie bar. We've all been to our (laughs) local townie bar. And it was always full of people drinking and listening to live music that they often hosted. Well, I mean, every town has a bar like this. You can't be considered a town in America if you don't have a somewhat shady townie bar that everyone (laughs) goes to. I think it's like an unwritten rule. Yeah. I mean, I can name two in our hometown, so... I feel like I can name three. Yeah, actually, I got three. Three on my mind. Easy. Easy three. <laughs> yeah, yes. For sure. Don't even count the Applebee's because technically. <laughs> <laughs> the Applebee's in every town is considered like the unofficial. That's like the, like you don't go to an Applebee's. You end Unless up, you want to get thrown out. No, no. You end up at an Applebee's. <laughs> and then you get thrown out. <laughs> yeah, that's actually their motto. You end up here and then we throw you out. <laughs> Applebee's. Well, on this particular Thirsty Thursday of November 20th in 2003, the club was being played by a band called Great White. 
Great White was a classic, well, I guess is, a mm. classic 80s hairband. Yeah. Classic. Classic. In 1977, vocalist Jack Russell, the man, not the dog, met guitarist Mark Kendall, and they decided to start a band. They hooked up with bassist Dan Costa and drummer Tony Richards. The band changed names a couple of times before settling on Great White, because they just thought that sharks were super badass. Okay, is that really the reason, or did you just make that up? I mean, sharks are badass. I will give them that, but is it true? It's on their website. <laughs> okay. Well, they well, didn't know... say badass. They said, like, sharks were the right. predators of you. Well, I know sometimes you write things, and I have to ask <laughs> if it's true. <laughs> this one kind of just seems like, is it true? I always keep the facts accurate though well i mean you'll say that they're not accurate but then you won't tell me until you after until after you've already read it so i always have to ask okay fair enough fair enough i like to riff you know what i mean it's like jazz podcasting's like jazz you're a riffer i i'm a riffer that's me i want to be a riffer and not a horse girl anymore okay well the riffer yeah Mm. it's like jack the ripper you're still a horse girl i fucking hate being here I want to go home, but I am home. At first, I didn't... Like, did you know who Great White was? I... No. I only knew them because of this event, actually. Re- yeah. I didn't... I couldn't think of them either. Mm-hmm. So, obviously, I Googled them because, yeah. duh, we're doing the yep. podcast. Yep. And that song, Once Bitten and Twice Shy... Once Bitten, Twice Shy, yeah. Yeah. That's the only song of theirs that I recognize. Well, that's because they were one-hit wonders, and that's probably the only song that anyone ever knows i mean i would should we sing it i don't want to sing it i want you to sing it it's like ma 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 one's been twice shot baby nailed it we should start a band i might cut that out depending on how terrible my voice sounds. it was really good all you said was my 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 <laughs> so sorry to all of the diehard great white fans out there mm. but i was raised in a deaf leopard house well my parents weren't really big into the 80s hair metal era so we were just a led zeppelin household and i have no complaints about that i was watching their music video earlier today for once bitten twice shy and it has everything (laughs) that you would ever want out of an early mtv music video like back when mtv was all music videos when it was about the music instead of the reality tv yeah yeah (laughs) do they even play music videos anymore no i don't think so really i think trl was like the last time that they did that it's just all like teen mom now teen mom and uh the challenge i don't know what that is and please don't tell me (laughs) (laughs) let me set the scene here first off the video is square remember when videos and movies were square because tvs were square yeah amazing so amazing so good and it opens up on an airplane hanger close your eyes and just i want everyone to visualize this okay eyes are closed it's the 80s okay (laughs) you're in an airplane hanger full of hot 80s babes and so much denim so much fringe and hair just a mile high and then in rise the lead singer on a motorcycle no that's right, with a sick-ass 80s honey on the bag. Full leather jacket. His sleeves are for some reason pushed up over his elbows. Looks uncomfortable. We got to. But he's rocking that look. Yeah. He is full 1980s glam rock. His hair honestly would make Dolly Parton's wig fucking weep real tears. <laughs> it's like bangs on bangs on beautiful teased blonde mullet. Ooh. 
yes. Everything about this music video, it just screams early MTV music video. You get the giant 80s hair. Oh, yeah. There's the hot babes, the leather jackets, Got the acid-washed denim. More I mean, acid than denim. Yeah. What more could you possibly ask for? Tr- nothing. Exactly. Truly nothing. Exactly. And it was with this song that the band really became well-known and exploded into the 80s hair metal scene, mm-hmm. which I understand. They were like yeah. one python short <laughs> of this being the best music video I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. That's true. They needed a python to really yeah. complete the full 80s ambiance. The ambiance. Yeah, I think so. Well, things were going super, super great for Great White. They headlined at, get this, a Six Flags Magic Mountain in Valencia. Oh, shit. But they did play to 6,250 people. Well, I mean, hey, you got to start somewhere, right? That's a shit ton of people. That's a lot of people, yeah. That's so many. I would be happy if we did a live show and had that many people, so I can't. I can't really shit on them for that. I would be happy if our moms and our dad showed up. Yeah. Because I have a feeling it would just be our moms. And like two of our friends. Yeah. Shout out. You know who you are. (laughs) (laughs) Well, then Great White was signed with Capitol Records and they started touring with some of the biggest names in rock at this time. They toured with Whitesnake. Yes. Judas Priest. Yes. Bon Jovi. Aw. And Kiss. Fuck yeah. Yeah, That's right. And just the first few years of their fame. Mm. And I told you I was going to have a fun story about my dad being a roadie. Mm -hmm. Um, I would like to interject it into the podcast right now. Please do. Okay. So I've mentioned before on this show, probably, that my dad was a roadie in the 80s. Okay. Well, he worked for Whitesnake. Oh. And he worked for Judas Priest. Oh, fuck yeah. I don't think he worked for Bon Jovi. I will ask. But he did tell me that Kiss played at the high school we went to before they were famous. Really? That's what he said. That's awesome. Pretty cool. But anyways, so um, this has virtually nothing to do with the episode, so I'm so sorry. (laughs) No, please tell it. Like virtually nothing. Everyone wants to know. But he said that they would always, always get picketed by religious groups whenever he was on tour. They would say that this was like the devil's music and he would argue with them (laughs) that God wasn't real. And that their God couldn't save them because only rock and roll was God. Yeah. Yeah. So if you were ever wondering what kind of house I grew up in, it was <laughs> one where rock and roll was God. That's hilarious. And I love it. Also, rock and roll is and was God. In 1988, their song Once Bitten and mm. Twice Shy yeah. was certified platinum and their band hit like the zenith of success. The band began touring in Europe and Japan alongside other famous rock bands. In the early 90s, the band split from Capitol Records and they began to sign on and then leave a few record labels. It was like just bad relationships over and over. Mm -hmm. In the early 2000s, the band broke up because of infighting. Infighting? Yeah. The lead singer, Jack Russell, Mm -hmm. um, he was just not getting along with anyone mm-hmm. else yeah i mean you know dogs will do that so you got to be careful <laughs> make a lot of jack russell dog jokes today i'm so sorry <laughs> in 2002 the lead singer jack russell the man not the dog was struggling with feeling irrelevant so he called up his og rock bud mark kendall and mark said basically he was feeling washed up also and also irrelevant i'm using the words washed up and irrelevant Sounds super mean, but they use those words. Well, so, and they kind of were, though, so. It's not the 80s anymore. Yeah. You know, when men looked like women and women looked like men and no one cared because 
the denim was just so acid washed. Yeah. Yeah. And the hair. It's a different Ooh. time. Different time. So anyways, they were all feeling super irrelevant and washed up. So they decided to get the band back together and try <laughs> making music again. They reunited under the name Jack Russell's Great White. They started touring, playing some of Great White's original catalog and also some solo songs that Jack had written in his Lonely Boy phase. All Lonely Boy phase. He was just a lonely boy. <laughs> the band played any venue that they could get, eventually adding more dates that would extend the tour through early 2003. On the night of February 20th, 2003, the station nightclub was packed with 460 visitors plus staff to see the return of epic 80s hair metal band Great White. Yes. Great White took the stage around 11 p.m. and they began with a billboard chart topper called Desert Moon. Only a few seconds into the song, the pyrotechnics started just as the electric guitar wailed. Just that morning, the state fire marshal in Rhode Island gave an interview regarding the stampede that had killed 21 people in a Chicago nightclub just just days before. Mm-hmm. What was it, three days? Three days, I think. He claimed that Rhode Island's fire codes all but eliminated the chance of a catastrophic nightclub fire in the ocean state. He was ironically quoted as saying, this is very remote, something like this would happen here. Um, what fire codes you... The building was basically exempt from all of them because it was old. Well, he was talking about other buildings, not this oh, building. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm, right. I mean, don't quote him on mm. this quote. Okay. Don't do that. <laughs> Nicole, please do us a favor and tell us if all of this foreshadowing came to fruition or if everyone just enjoyed a super dope rock concert and then lived happily ever after. They did not enjoy a rock concert. I feel like the narrator from Arrested Development (laughs) when I said that. I I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but... A negative narrator, just to interject here, is my absolute favorite part of any movie or show. (laughs) Sometimes I narrate like that out loud alone in my house. (laughs) Same. Like, I'll wake up and be like, it's going to be a super great day. But little did she know, it was not going to be a super great day. And then I'm sad the rest of the day because I just narrated myself in a negative mm, way. You n- negatively narrated yourself. Yeah. Start positively narrating yourself. Maybe that'll help. <gasps> Ooh. All right. Well, let's get to the fire. All right. Narrate me, Captain. <laughs> so prior to the band taking the stage, the new tour manager, Daniel Beakley, who was only 26 years old at the time. A baby. Yeah. He set up some gerbs. Two on each side of the stage, where each of the band's guitarists would be positioned, and then two in front of the drummer in the middle of the stage. Look, we know that Austin is, like, in a band or whatever, but for the rest of us (laughs) non-groupies, what's a gerb? It's so funny, because I totally was a groupie uh, back in the day. (laughs) But a gerb is a type of firework that emits sparks or fire that lasts for about 15 to 60 seconds, These gerbs were to go up 15 feet high in the air. So think if you've ever set off fireworks for the 4th of July. Mm -hmm. You know those fountain spark ones that just kind of stand on their own and it just shoots up? Yeah, the pointless ones? Yeah. So basically, those were the ones that were put on stage and they were just supposed to go off in the beginning of the show and that was supposed to be it. Oh, perfect, perfect. Yeah. Earlier that year, singer Jack Russell, the 
singer, not the dog, yeah. um, had mentioned that he wanted something new for the tour because he wanted, you know, spruce up the show. Got so to. the new tour manager, Daniel Beakley, found these gerbs and they actually tested them in a parking lot. Metal. Jack liked what he saw and he okayed the purchase of over $1,000 worth of pyro equipment for the remaining shows. And he was like, yes. These will do nicely. <laughs> and then the manager of Walmart came out and he was like, yeah, can you maybe not do that in our parking lot? Thanks so much. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly actually how it happened. Anyways, this show was actually not the first show that the bands had used these sparkler fountains. At other stops, the stunt went on and the sparks went up. They fell to the floor so no one really thought that there was much risk involved with them. I mean, it is a pretty sick and absolutely 80s hair oh, band so move 80s, yeah. to use pyrotechnics at a concert. So right. I get it. I get right. the appeal. Exactly. The first stop the band tried to use the pyrotechnics at was Shark City Billiards and Sports Bar in Glendale Heights, Illinois, which is very close to us. Yeah, dude. And it's still open and playing live music today. So maybe we should go, you know? We should. In January 2003, the band tried to set up these pyrotechnics in Shark City Billiards and Sports Bar. The club manager, however, strictly told Beakley that the band was not to use these because it was not safe and that she would have no part in them using it in her establishment. So she basically saved everyone, and good for you, sister. Hell yeah, dude. That is exactly why Shark City is still open and not burned to the ground. Oh, spoiler. Um, Because this badass manager said uh, a no to indoor fireworks that shoot 15 feet up into the air. Right. So good on her. Yep. On Thursday, February 20th, 2003... This was a big night for the Station Nightclub and the Dadarian brothers who owned it. Great White was one of the first big acts that they had booked since they had bought it in 2000. Great White was very popular in the 80s, and their popularity may have been on a downward trend, but 80s hair metal fans are some of the most loyal fans And the tickets just kind of sold like hotcakes. Oh, yeah, dude. They were expecting a full house, and the staff was ready for it. So they thought. So they thought. Dude, seriously, 80s hair metal fans, it's all of our moms and dads, (laughs) and they're still trying to make acid wash work. It's back now, but it's it's still not cool if your mom does it. No. No. 38-year-old Kevin J. Beasy, the club manager had pushed chairs and tables and pool tables out of the way and up against walls in preparation for the guests that were to come that night. Yeah, pack them in tight, dude. Sardine that shit. Got to. Paul Vanner, the club's sound guy and the club's stage manager, met with Beakley, the tour manager. They had agreed to pay the band $5,000 for 90 minutes, and then the band was to host a post-show meet and greet. Oh, I wonder how that went. Uh, it did not go well. <laughs> oh, oh, right, right, right. Sorry, I'm like the narrator, I feel like, in this episode. I like it. Paul Vanner, the sound guy, said that there was no mention of pyrotechnics during this meeting, to his knowledge. Beakley the tour manager, was not granted permission. This is what Paul said? 
That's what the sound guy said, yeah. Okay, well, that's a red flag. Well, see, Paul says that if Beakley had gotten permission, if he had known about it, he would have given them his personal fire extinguisher that he usually kept under his soundboard to keep on stage with them just in case anything happened. He said that he did this every time he was aware a band was going to be using pyrotechnics just in case. That's very clever to do, but mm-hmm. part of me feels like he should have one there all the time, always. <laughs> just me. I feel like especially when an 80s hair metal band is playing, everyone should just assume that there's probably going to be a fire. Yeah. Just the amount of hairspray that they use alone could spontaneously combust <laughs> at any moment. Very true. Yeah. I, you know what? I hope our sponsor, Aquanet, doesn't get mad at me for saying that. Mm, we're going to have to cut this part. Oh, no. <laughs> In attendance that night was a man named Brian Butler, who was a cameraman for the Providence TV station WPRI. Ironically enough, Jeff Dadarian, who was part owner of the club, had just taken a job at WPRI where Brian worked after he left Boston's Channel 7. Hmm, okay. Brian Butler was sent to the nightclub that night by Jeff Dadarian to film a story about safety in public venues. Oh, no. Yeah. This was because of the stampede that happened three days earlier at the Chicago nightclub that caused the deaths of 21 people that you mentioned earlier. Yeah. So this is the video that that we mentioned earlier. It, Brian filmed it, basically just gives a raw look at what happened that night and just really shows how tragic the whole thing was. I mean, Brian, he was filming. He was pretty close to the front of the stage when the fire happened. So as soon as it goes up, he makes his way for the door. Maybe because the stampede was fresh in his brain. I don't know. But I feel like just knowing that sort of saved his life oh dude it absolutely saved his life Mm -hmm. we were just talking about this before we were recording yeah when you see a fire it takes a moment for you to register like your brain to say danger danger Mm -hmm. so it was definitely fresh in this guy's mind and i feel like that's why he reacted instantly yeah and if you think everyone at that show probably had a couple drinks in them already oh for sure tipsy maybe drunk so your reaction time is not going to be what it is if you're sober yeah so yeah another factor in play here man it's so fucked up like i could talk about this video for the next 18 hours i won't but i just want to say one more thing yeah it is incredible that this man filmed this entire thing start to finish Mm -hmm. because of him and his like fast moving yeah we have a direct documentation of what happened yeah and again Watch it if you dare, but I don't think I... I feel like I'm honestly going to have nightmares about it. Yeah. It's dark. You just be like me and watch it an extra 20 times just to make sure you really saw everything. No. No. (laughs) Or not. Either or. No. Either way. Either way is fine. As the first song started, Beakley, the tour manager, turned the key to ignite the fireworks. In nine seconds... The flames caught onto the acoustic foam above the drummer. Within 18 seconds, the flames caught onto the foam on either side of the stage walls behind each guitarist. Six seconds after that, the ceiling was on fire and there was no stopping it. The acoustic foam that was installed in the venue was a layer of urethane foam followed by a layer of polyethylene foam. 
Urethane foam is highly flammable, but polyethylene foam is hard to ignite. But once it's on fire, it produces more heat. And since it was layered with the very flammable urethane foam, it just caught very easily. It took 33 seconds for basically the entire stage, all the walls and the ceiling to catch on fire. Yep. That's incredibly quick. And I'm just going to honestly give a heavy side eye and like a little prayer hand situation to all the foam on our ceiling right now. Just <laughs> we knock do on have wood. Quite, quite a bit of foam. <laughs> knock on wood. Um, what are you made of foam? I went to check the Amazon listing for the foam that I had bought from Amazon mm-hmm. and the listing no longer exists. So I don't know if it's flammable or uh, not. Probably because it's fucking responsible for burning buildings down. Yeah. Okay, well, we're going to, you know what? We're going to go light one of these on fire after don't, this. Don't set see. a gerb up in the haunted attic and we'll be fine. But it's gerb Thursdays. <laughs> Gerbs day. Gerbs day. Should we be laughing when people are dying? Oh, it makes me feel better. Yeah. Once the foam was burning, it released a dark smoke along with a deadly gas composed of carbon monoxide and hydrogen cyanide. If you inhale this smoke, you lose consciousness and you pass out. But if you inhale enough of it, it leads to internal suffocation. At first, everyone thought it was just a part of the show. Like we said, you're having a good time, you're a little tipsy. That is until the entire ceiling caught fire. And lead vocalist Jack Russell said, wow, that's not good. And then everyone started to sort of panic. Wow, that's not good. (laughs) I know this is a national tragedy and a lot of people, spoiler, died and Mm. got injured. So I'm just going to, I'm trying to keep the jokes to a minimum, but honestly, they make me feel better. Like, yeah. I'm that asshole making jokes at funeral going, I'm so sorry. I'm the kind of girl that laughs at a funeral. <laughs> That's me, but not to be mean. But this is giving me big spinal tap vibes. Yeah. Just him being on the stage being like, whoa, that's not good. Like, no shit, babe. Ceilings are not supposed to be on fire. They just aren't. Yeah. Well, str- I'm like getting anxiety. Yeah, I know. It's, it's hard to talk about a little bit, but Paul Vanner who was the sound guy, he was standing at the front of the stage by his monitors when the fire first ignited. And he saw it happen, so he tried to push his way through the crowd towards the back to get to his fire extinguisher that he knew he kept under the the soundboard. Smart, but again, there should have been one on the stage. Yeah. He said it was about 40 feet away, and by the time he got to the soundboard, he turned around and the flames had already engulfed the entire ceiling and by that time, he had just he just knew it was too late. Remember, it took 33 seconds mm. for this to ignite. While on stage, lead singer Jack Russell said he searched for a fire extinguisher nearby. But the closest one was stored in a closet. The bracket that held it had broken weeks before. Weeks. Mm. So it was not in sight as it should have been, propped on the wall near right. the stage. Instead, him and his bandmates headed for the stage door because they just knew there was nothing left for them to do. This drives me absolutely insane. Every single thing that could possibly go wrong goes wrong. Yeah. Around this time, the club's fire alarm was alerted and it starts to go off. So I think when we watched the video, I think it was 43 seconds 
yeah. that it took from them to start and then the, to when the fire alarm is actually alerted. Yeah. The alarm was triggered by the heat, which had to be greater than 195 degrees. Wow. This alarm went off, oh, 48 seconds after the pyrotechnics were activated, is what the article said. Okay. So we'll say around 40 to 50 min- seconds. Under a minute. We are under, under a, minute a minute still, and it's 200 degrees in this building. Yeah. There were four possible exits, but the majority of the people went for the exit that they had entered, the only exit that they knew. Right. One door was an inward swinging door, which had actually previously been replaced three times because it had been cited by inspectors Mm. three times because it was said to have been blocking an exit that was closest to the stage. Oh, perfect. There was also a sign on this door that read, door remains closed at all times. It's also said that bouncers standing by this door told patrons that they couldn't use it and that they needed to use the main entrance because this exit was reserved for employees in the band. That's a quote, reserved for the band. Mm-hmm. Can you just, can you fucking imagine you are in a room where the walls and the ceilings are on fire? Yeah. The alarm is going off. People are screaming. It's filling up with thick black smoke. And you're told you can't go out a fucking door by a dick bag in a black t-shirt and too tight of jeans. Mm-hmm. And that this door is only for musicians? Right. Like, what? Honestly, oh my God. I'd be like, I don't care. I'm going, what are you going to do? Throw me out? Okay, that's what I want. I'm going to go out of this exit. It blows my fucking mind. Yeah. And I did read a quote from someone that survived, and he said he tried to get out yeah. through that. A lot of people said that. Yeah, and he broke a window. So he's mm-hmm. like, I got to get out. And they were adamant. As the crowd panicked, they ran towards the front two exits, both at the front of the building. So the only exits for them to go are in the same direction. Yeah. Fire codes are actually put in place to avoid such a rush by requiring you to have a minimum of two exits far enough apart, but that was not the case for this particular venue. Of course. Because it was built in the 40s. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Grandfathered in. You just were exempt from everything, I guess. Another factor was that a ticket booth was built into the floor near the main entrance, which only allowed three feet of space between the ticket booth and the wall. So the entrance was only three feet wide. For 463 people. Yes. I'm picturing this in my head as you're reading it, and it's freaking me out. Yeah, I know. The stampede of people combined with the small entrance led to a pile of people crushed in the narrow hallway leading to the exit. Jake Pauls, a Maryland safety specialist who studies crowd management, said, Once a person falls, those in the back just pile up like firewood. Oh, my God. And he said that the pile of people towards the exit could have resulted in merely a single stumble from one person. Wow. I didn't didn't know... Or really think about it that it just would take one person to start right. this but it makes sense you know someone gets shoved because everyone's in a panic yeah. and they trip and think of all the time like, i mean i'm assuming you've been to a concert or live music sure you've probably pushed your way to the front i've sure. done it yeah think of how much you just get pushed with the crowd it's very easy to fall have you ever been in a mosh pit yeah been in a mosh pit very easy to fall in a mosh pit too well and if you fall in a mosh pit you're basically trampled automatically so don't advise it but it's so easy yeah 
it's so easy just to get pushed and lose your footing. It's, oh my God, dude, this is making me feel sick. Yeah. And I will say that this is probably one of the most disturbing parts of the video. Mm -hmm. You can see the entrance and you can see people piled in the doorway. It's unbelievable. I mean, there are people literally outside of the venue pulling people out of this doorway because they're just piled on top of each other, reaching out for help. And it's so disturbing. Noelle's tearing right now. <laughs> it's it's the most fucked up thing I think I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, it's very, very bad. I'm crying real tears. She is. Keep on with it. Oh my God. You, I cried last episode and you're crying this episode. Oh my God. What are we emotional? <laughs> I'm not sure if this is an exact number because, I mean, I found it online, but I'm not exactly sure. There's mm-hmm. different accounts of everything. So that night, 462 people were in attendance at the show. The club's official licensed capacity was 404 people. So they were over capacity by 58 people. That's unacceptable. Yeah. I'm sorry. But I feel like it happens all the time. Oh, for sure. It absolutely does, especially when they move all the tables and stuff and there's no way to say every seat is full. It's so easy. Right. The same safety specialist, Jake Pauls, also said that after seeing the video that Brian Butler filmed, Mm -hmm. he estimated that once the fire caught on and the patrons first reacted, they probably only had about 43 seconds to be able to escape before the front exit was blocked by the swarm of people. And I think back to all the shows I've been to, similar venues, and probably so many that I can think of that if there were a fire... I would have 100% died. Oh, yeah. You go, you know, crowded people and you're in basements or you're in shitty ass bars Mm -hmm. and all these places and you don't think about it until you see something like this. Yeah. Think of every place you've ever seen live music. Think of all of the exits. Did you know where all the exits were? Would everyone in that venue be able to exit if a fire happened? Like, not a chance. Also, I'm thinking... So technically, they had four exits. Yeah. So I feel like maybe they were in code because if the other two exits were at the opposite side of the building, even though they weren't. Well, the one door was blocked. The one was the stage exit. And then there was one through the kitchen that no one knew about but the employees. Right. Oh, I guess we'll get to that. Yeah. I don't know. It's just I'm feeling disturbed. I know. I mean, it could happen anywhere. Anywhere you go. And I was technically a groupie back in the day. So the fact that I'm alive, no, I'm just kidding. But (laughs) I mean, it could happen anywhere. Like, just think of all of, I mean, I can think of at least 10 off the top of my head. And 43 seconds is no time at all. No. Like, start a timer on your phone right now for 43 seconds. Try to run wherever you are out the front door of your house and then go, let's say, back to your back door. Yeah. Just try it. And then add 400 people into that equation. Yeah. You're not going to make it. Mm -mm. I couldn't run 43 seconds out of my house right now. Could you? No. Not a chance. Mm -mm. Out of the 462 people that were in attendance that night, 100 people lost their lives. 96 people perished in the fire and another four died afterwards due to complications the following day. That's almost a quarter of the people that were there. I know. It's unreal. Some burned alive. Some died from being trampled, and some died from inhaling the poisonous smoke. 
Besides the people that died, several others were severely injured from inhalation, burns, and just trampling. I feel like dying from inhalation of this toxic smoke would honestly be the best way to die in this scenario. Mm -hmm. Or, I guess, ideally, if you could become unconscious because breathing in smoke and then you just, you don't know. Right. You're burning. And the whole time we were watching that video, I was just thinking, these people know what's coming. Yeah. And there's nothing that they can do. And burning to death is the death that I fear the most. And I, probably 90% of people feel the same way. Yeah. Right? Yes. Yeah. Not good. Not good to think about. I'm so sad. When the flames were finally controlled and put out by the front entrance, at least 25 bodies were found stacked and piled on top of each other in the entrance trying to get out. Among those who lost their lives were Great White's guitarist, Ty Longley, who was only 31 years old at the time, along with the show's MC for the night, a WHJY DJ, Mike the Doctor Gonzalez. It's believed that these two tried to salvage equipment, but due to the toxic smoke, and it was just very thick and dark, you couldn't really see anything, they were not able to escape. The saddest part of it is that Ty got out of the building with the rest of the band, Mm -hmm. and he went back in to try to save his guitar. (gasps) He initially made it out, and then went back to save his guitar. That hits hard, dude. Yeah, I mean, I know a lot of musicians, and I can honestly see that. I I get it. I get it for sure. Yeah. And when things like this happen, you don't always think straight. Yeah. So I get it. He probably thought I made... He probably didn't think. Yeah. You know, he's out, he's safe, and then he thought, my guitar. Mm-hmm. And he went back for it. And yeah. I mean, again, just to bring back the video... The smoke. The smoke is, was the biggest part of it because it was just black smoke. I want to read a statement by Brian Butler, who was the man who recorded the whole thing. So he was kind of in the thick of it. Mm-hmm. So Brian says, it was that fast. As soon as the pyrotechnics stopped, the flame had started on the egg crate backing behind the stage and it just went up the ceiling. And people stood and they watched it. Some people backed off. When I turned around, some people were already trying to leave and others were just sitting there going, yeah, that's great. And I remember that statement because I was like, this is not great. This is the time to leave. At first, there was no panic. Everyone just kind of turned. Most people just stood there. In the other rooms, the smoke hadn't gotten to them yet and the flame wasn't that bad. They didn't think anything of it. Well, I guess once we all started to turn towards the door and we got bottlenecked into the front door, people just kept pushing and eventually everyone popped out of the door, including myself. That's when I turned back and I went around back. There was no one coming out of the back door anymore. I kicked out a side window to try to let people get out. One guy did crawl out. I went back around the front again and that's when you saw people stacked on top of each other trying to get out of the front door. And by then, the black smoke was pouring out over their heads. I noticed when the pyro stopped, the flames had kept going on both sides. And then on one side, I noticed it came over the top. And that's when I said to myself, I had to leave. And I turned around and I said, get out, get out, go to the door, get to the door. And people just stood there. There was a table in the way of the door and I pulled it out just to get it out of the way so people could get out easier. And I never expected it to take off as fast as it did. It was just, 
It was so fast. It had to be two minutes tops before the whole place was black smoke. I think the biggest part of it was just that it it happened so fast. It was so fast. It really was. And, I mean, that was pretty much a play-by-play of the actual video of it. Yeah. Part of me wonders, he moved this table so people could get out easier. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it would have eventually gotten moved, but I'm I was... I'm thinking, like, maybe it was, like, a wristband table. Like, if you bought tickets, you got yeah. a wristband to, to be able to come yeah. in and out, smoke cigarettes or whatever. That's what I'm picturing in my head. I wonder if more people wouldn't have gotten out if it was in the way, because they had to, like, yeah. file through. Well, he was right at the end of it. He got out, and then he turned around, and yeah. people were piled. And That's you see true. it in the video. Yeah. Oh, I don't... It's I insane. It. Yeah. Obviously, with a tragedy such as this... Someone needs to get blamed. So, Noel, do you want to talk a little bit about that? <laughs> sure. I also just want to apologize for just being so sad during this episode. But it's a it's, very sad episode. It's so sad. Yeah. We, we can't make fun of, like, any murderers or anything to try to make it funny. Like, it's no. just terrible. No. All right. Next week, let's do something funny that I can make fun of. <laughs> okay. <laughs> hey, Noel, do you like cookies for breakfast? <laughs> Who doesn't like cookies, especially for breakfast? Wait, I don't think we're talking about the same kind of cookies. Oh, you mean like cookies for breakfast? Yeah, duh, who doesn't? Well, I found this new podcast called Cookies for Breakfast, and it's all about the pursuit of pleasure. Oh, I've heard of that. Isn't that Spark Tabor's podcast? He's local, right? Yes. He is a hilarious Chicago-based stand-up comedian, and he hosts a podcast about sex, pop culture, and current events. Dang, dude. His stand-up is so funny. I can't wait to hear his take on sex, pop culture, and current events. Well, his show releases every Monday, and I already subscribed and added it to my Monday morning routine. You know what? I'm going to subscribe right now. Cookies for breakfast. Oh, it's on Apple Podcasts. Actually, you can find it anywhere you listen to podcasts. So, like you said, someone is always at fault for things like this. Yeah. It wasn't a natural disaster or an act of God. Honestly, it was just an act of stupidity on a lot of people's parts, if you ask me. Yeah. Almost immediately after the fire, the families of the victims were looking for someone to point a finger at. Mm -hmm. There was an effort to assign blame to the band, the band's manager, the nightclub owners, the foam manufacturers, the pyrotechnics manufacturers, the concert promoters, and even the fire marshals. Everyone was suing everyone in an attempt to lay blame somewhere. I mean, a hundred people died. A quarter of the attendants of this concert died. That's insane, and I am totally on the team of someone needs to take responsibility for this. Yeah, I mean, it was obviously an accident, but it was someone's big mess up. Days after the event, things started to get, mm, lawyery, I'll say. <laughs> lawyery. <laughs> Prosecutors first targeted the pyrotechnics because they were obviously the point where the fire had started. Since the manufacturer and the distributor of the pyrotechnics could not have controlled where they were used... They could not technically be at fault. The next logical move was the users of the pyrotechnics. In just a really messed up turn of events, through their attorneys, the owners of the club said that they did not give permission for the band to use pyrotechnics, which you sort of did mention earlier. 
Yeah, I, I think it's like a it's like a he said she said type of thing. We don't really know because we weren't there, right? But but yeah. the band members said that they absolutely had permission. I personally here am going to side with the band. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, no one knows, but right. I want to pick a side here. Um, <laughs> I bet the club owners let them do it, but no one got in writing. Well, so they weren't able to. Prove and if it. you think, remember when they first tried to use it, and they were told no, and they didn't use it. That's how I feel. So, to me, if they were to ask, I think they would have asked because they already did, and they were told no. Exactly. They so, asked that lady in what was it, Glendale Heights? Glendale Heights. She said no, and they she didn't said no. Use them, so. Right. So why would they just go around her, or yeah. why wouldn't they have gone around her? Right. The same way they supposedly went around these people. Yeah. It's he said, she said, no one no one really knows. Right. So this is the owner saying, no, we didn't do anything. It was their fault. Mm-hmm. In a computer simulation done by the National Institute of Standards and Technology, under the authority of the National Construction Safety Team Act, which I want to say, um, you know, I worked in construction for a really long time. Yeah. And reading all these fucking mistakes that I would have gotten oh, in yeah. so much trouble You're for. You're the pro on this. I forgot. It is driving me insane. Yeah. Insane. And also, fun tidbit here, they make the little hooks that hold fire extinguishers out of metal now so that they cannot break. <gasps> wow. Wow. Yeah. So nice. good, I guess. Yes, very good. Yeah, for sure. If you don't have a fire extinguisher in your house, please go buy yeah, one. Buy one. Buy two, actually. Keep it on every floor of your house. Yeah. Maybe don't have any pyrotechnics also. Don't Just... put any gerbs in your kitchen. No, gerb Thursday is canceled. Nationwide, it's over. We're not doing it anymore. Yeah. Okay. All right. So this computer simulation done by all these people um, was done to determine that a properly installed fire sprinkler system would have made it so that virtually everyone inside the building would have been able to make it out. Man. See, a fire sprinkler system would have been unlikely to actually put out the fire. Mm -hmm. They're actually called fire suppression systems. Oh. So they don't necessarily put out the fire. They just kind of keep it at bay. Right. Especially since the ceiling was on fire and the system comes down from the ceiling it would have kept the flames at such a minimum that everyone inside would have had enough time to get out of the building, but not necessarily have put it out. Mm-hmm. And you remember that fire inspector earlier? I sure do. Well, it had been determined by either him or his department that the nightclub was built before sprinkler laws changed, effectively allowing the building to be grandfathered in and be exempt from installing a fire system when, in fact... The building had once been deemed a restaurant, and then it was changed into a club. Mm -hmm. So its occupancy licensing actually changed, and it was no longer exempt. So if you're a club, you have to have a sprinkler system, but if you're a restaurant, you don't. I guess according to this area. So on the night of the fire that killed 100 people, and frankly, honestly could have killed so many more people, The station nightclub was legally required to have a fire sprinkler system installed, but it did not. Man. So for anyone at home keeping score, that's a big minus one for the fire marshals. You have one job. And it's to protect people against fire. Right? That's your job. So crazy to me. It wasn't only a lazy fire inspection team that doomed all of these hard rock fans. 
It was also the layout of the club that helped to seal their fate. The club was basically a death trap by design. Mm -hmm. Like you said earlier, there were four exits to the club and two were basically completely useless. Mm -hmm. The fire safety experts that were consulted said a crowd of 400 people should have been able to make it out of the door in an orderly fashion in about 200 seconds. So what is that, four-ish minutes? Yeah, but do people ever go out of a building in an orderly fashion if it's on fire? Never, ever. Yeah. Not even one time. Even if it's not on fire. Mm-hmm. Just say, like, free cake and everyone just runs. Yeah. 18 people die. Yeah. Cabbage Patch Kids on sale, 18 people die. Exactly. Every yeah. time. Mm-hmm. Black Friday, man. Well, these people did not get those 200 seconds because of the panic that arose, forcing the majority of them through that bottleneck situation at the front of the club. Mm-hmm. The ceiling was also built in a way that forced the flames up into a cone shape and it accelerated the fire forwards. There were also two fans mounted near the ceilings on either side of the stage, which were on, and directed the smoke from the fire at a 45 degree angle out and down towards the dance floor. This chased frightened patrons towards the front of the door, and honestly, it was the perfect storm. Yeah, I mean, when you have that many people, it gets hot, so you want fans to cool them off. Right. But in this case, it just, like, Made propelled uh-huh. this poisonous gas right into these people's faces. Right. And also, the thick black smoke reached the floor in just a matter of minutes because uh. of these fans. All the while, the flames had gotten into the duct system, and they got under that secondary foam. Mm-hmm. So you said the first foam that was closest to the ceiling was it's highly flammable. flammable. You can see in the video, the flames start coming out like gophers all over because that interior foam is on fire and the exterior isn't. So it's building this fire inside of it Mm -hmm. and then it just erupts. Yeah. Plus, the building had a wooden frame, so that also lit on fire. Mm. The building was just a perfect example of a disaster waiting to happen. All in all, prosecutors collected 717 pieces of evidence for the resulting trial. One piece of evidence was a quote from Beakley, the manager. The tour manager, yeah. He was overheard saying, quote, I screwed up. He claimed the pyrotechnics were set up hastily and in the dark, and this resulted in them being placed too close to the stage's rear wall. He said if the drum riser had been set up eight inches further out, Nothing would have caught fire. I'm sorry, um, Mr. Beakley. How do you know this? Yeah. Are you a fire marshal now? I don't think eight inches would have made a goddamn difference at all, given the flammable poisonous foam. Oh, for sure. I don't think that eight inches was going to save anything, but okay. Eight inches never does anything, let's be honest. (laughs) On December 9th, 2003, the two owners of the station nightclub and Dan Beakley, Great White's road manager, mm-hmm. were each charged with 200 counts of involuntary manslaughter, two per death, wow. because they were indicted under two separate theories of the crime, criminal negligence manslaughter and misdemeanor manslaughter. The brothers pleaded not guilty to the charges while Beakley pled guilty. The first trial against the band's manager was scheduled to start on May 1st, 2006. It's a long time after. Yeah, three years. Beakley, against his lawyer's advice, pled guilty to 100 counts of involuntary manslaughter on February 7th, 2006. 
He said that he wanted to bring peace and, quote, I just want this to be over with. Oh, that's actually pretty admirable. I bet he felt so bad afterwards. I can't imagine. You can't live a normal life after that. I mean, you made the mistake that cost 100 people their lives. Yeah. I mean, yes, it was your mistake, but it's, oh, God, that's terrible. On May 10th of 2006, state prosecutors asked that Beakley be sentenced to 10 years in prison, which was the maximum allowed under the plea bargain, citing the massive loss of life in the fire and the need to send a message. Beakley made a statement in the court to the families of the victims through tears. He's quoted as saying, For three years, I've wanted to speak to the people that were affected by this tragedy. But I know that there's nothing that I can say or do that will undo what happened that night. Since the fire, I've wanted to tell the victims and their families how truly sorry I am for what happened that night and the part that I had in it. I never wanted anyone to be hurt in any way. I never imagined that anyone would be. I know how this tragedy has devastated me. But I can only begin to understand what the people who lost loved ones have endured. I don't know that I'll ever forgive myself for what happened that night, so I can't expect anyone else to. I can only pray that they understand that I would do anything to undo what happened that night and give them back their loved ones. I am going to cry. It's very sad. I am so sorry for what I had done, and I don't want to cause anyone any more pain. I will never forget that night, and I will never forget the people that were hurt by it. I am so sorry. That's terrible. It's so terrible and moving and upsetting, and he was crying the whole time he said it. I'm sure he was. It's a very upsetting, like, just imagine. Just imagine. I can't can't even imagine. Yeah. Ultimately, he was sentenced to 15 years in prison with four to serve and 11 years suspended plus three years probation for his role in the fire. Under this sentence, with good behavior, Beakley was eligible for parole in September of 2007. True enough, he went up for parole, and some families of the fire victims even expressed their support for parole. Leland Hosington, whose 28-year-old daughter Abby was killed in the fire, told reporters, quote, I think they should not even bother with a hearing. Just let Beakley out. I just don't find him guilty of anything. People were very supportive of him. I mean, he didn't mean to do it. No, he didn't go into it trying to kill 100 people. No. It was like a freak accident. And And he was very, very remorseful. Yeah, he pled guilty. Yeah, and a lot of people said that he actually seemed to be a scapegoat. Yeah. Which is interesting. Hmm. The state parole board received 20 letters in support of Beakley receiving parole. Oh, wow. Beakley had handwritten letters to each of the 100 victims' families and was in a work release program with a local charity. He was released from prison on March 19th of 2008, and then he kind of disappeared after that, and I don't blame him. I don't blame him either. I bet he's so PTSD, just messed up by this. Probably more so than the victims. Oh, yeah. Because he was there, too. Mm -hmm. So he had to get out of the fire, and oh, God, I can't. And he was responsible, you know? The club owners, brothers Michael and Jeff Derdarian, on the other hand, were going to plead not guilty to all charges. Mm. They were scheduled to receive separate trials, but had changed their pleas at the last minute to a no contest to avoid trial. 
Michael Dardarian received 15 years in prison, with four to serve and 11 years suspended, plus three years probation, so the exact same sentence as Beakley. His brother, Jeffrey Dardarian, received a 10-year suspended sentence, three years probation, and 500 hours of community service. The judge that handed down the sentences said that the differences in the brothers' sentences reflected their involvement with the purchase and installation of the flammable foam. So one of the brothers got more jail time because he was the specific person that bought the foam? That's what it seems like. Whether it was the installation of a flammable foam or I'm unsure, but he had more of a hand in it, I guess. I just looked it up because I was curious, and I don't know if our listeners are, but um, a... If you plead no contest versus guilty, a no contest plea is essentially a guilty plea that says you are not going to fight the charges against you, but you're not admitting guilt. Oh, wow. So you just basically get what they decide for you, but you don't put on record that you say you're guilty. Wow. Which is kind of fucked up. I feel like it's extremely shitty. I would rather just say I was guilty and give and get what they gave me. How do you not in a situation yeah. like this? Probably, maybe, I, I haven't looked further into it, but maybe it doesn't go on your record or it's different on your record. I don't know. I, I honestly don't know. Not a lawyer. I don't know. I'm just going to say, I'm sorry to say it, but I yeah. think that they're shitty fucking people for doing that. Yeah, I would for sure do. I would, yeah, guilty for There's sure. There's no way. There's yeah. no way I couldn't. Mm-hmm. One attorney general argued that both brothers should have received more jail time than the band manager. And I agree with that personally. The one brother didn't go to jail. In January of 2008, the parole board decided to grant Michael Dardarian an early release from his previous release date of September 2009 to June 2009 for good behavior. The brothers were also fined $1.07 million for failing to carry workers' compensation insurance for their employees, four of whom died in the blaze. (sighs) So these guys were just cutting corners everywhere they absolutely could. And they pled no contest and Mm -hmm. not guilty. Mm -hmm. Sounds about right. As of September 2008, a lot of settlement agreements were paid out to victims and their families with at least $115 million worth. Shit. Uh, Do you want to go over some? Yeah. In September of 2008, the Jack Russell Tour Group, Inc., the (laughs) man, not the dog, Offered $1 million in a settlement to survivors and victims, in a settlement to survivors and victims' relatives, which was the maximum allowed under the band's insurance plan. Club owners Jeff and Michael Dardarian have offered to settle for $813,000, which is to be covered by their insurance plan due to the pair having bankruptcy protection from lawsuits. Don't cut corners. Just don't cut corners and you won't have be bankrupt. But they're still not doing this out of the goodness of their heart. No, no. The state of Rhode Island and the town of West Warwick agreed to pay $10 million as a settlement. Sealed Air Corporation agreed to pay $25 million as a settlement. Sealed Air makes the flammable packaging foam mm-hmm. that was installed at the at the club. Right. So... The club actually required acoustical foam designed for that purpose, but they cheaped out and they used packing foam. Oh. So it wasn't even the right kind of foam. That's why it was flammable. Mm-hmm. And the, the company that made this foam paid $25 million? Yeah. 
that's not even what their film's intended for. Exactly, and they still paid a lot. Wow. In February of 2008, Providence television station WPRI-TV and their then-owners, LIN-TV, made an out-of-court settlement of $30 million as a result of the claim that their video journalist was said to be obstructing escape and not sufficiently helping people exit. What? That's a thing. They also, their DJ, that that was the DJ died, WPRI, I think. Or no, I think it was a different one. Uh, there we'll get to them later. W H J Y. Oh, okay. That's who okay. they were. But that's a thing. It's called a Good Samaritan law, and a lot of states carry it. Wait, WPRI would have been Brian. Mm-hmm. So he was obstructing people because he was filming. They say. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of times, oh. like people are scared to give people the Heimlich maneuver and stuff, because if you try to save someone and you don't, you're technically liable in some states. And I'm not a lawyer, so well, don't quote and he me. also had the video, so I mean anyone can take that video and take anything they want out of it and say he was standing here when this part, you know, like it's easy to just pinpoint yeah. certain things and oh, I think that's man. fucked up. That is really shitty. In March of 2008, JBL speakers settled out of court for $815,000. JBL was accused of using flammable foam inside of their speakers. So this was, like, on top of it. Oh, my God. This is insane. Yeah. I didn't read this part prior to this. I'm so, like, Dude, they, I'm telling you, they sued everyone Good. and anyone Good. that they could have. Anheuser-Busch offered $5 million. And McLaughlin and Moran, which is Anheuser-Busch's distributor, yeah. offered $16 million to just help out the families <sighs> and the victims. Well, they have the money. So nice. Yeah. Home Depot and Polar Industries, Inc., which is a Connecticut-based installation company, Mm -hmm. they made a settlement offer of $5 million because a lot of the products were supplied through them. Oh, shit. Isn't that crazy? You can sue, like, all the way. The people who have nothing to do with the construction of it, but you buy it through them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. I'm I'm a buyer. Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I know. (laughs) I forgot. Providence Radio Station, which is the one that you mentioned earlier. Oh, yeah, yeah. W-H-J-Y-F-M. They promoted the show, which, remember, the MC DJ yeah. Mike, the doctor, Gonsalves, mm-hmm. who passed away, yeah. who was one of the casualties. Um, their parent company had paid a settlement of $22 million in February of 2008 wow. for his death. Wow. The American Foam Corporation, who sold the insulation to Station Nightclub, agreed in 2008 to pay $6.3 million to settle lawsuits relating to the fire. Wow. So those are the major settlements that I found, which... Yeah, that's that's a lot yeah, of money. It's so much money. I should have added it up, but it's... I'm going to say, just doing math in my head right now, $80 bajillion for this event. $80 bajillion. Easily. Easily yeah. $80 bajillion. Wow. I hope... I really hope some of that went to the families and the victims. I think a lot of it did. But also, a lot of good came out of this, right? Yeah. So if we want to talk about the positive effects, which we do. Absolutely should. So on February 24th, 2003, so remember this happened on the 20th. So four days later, a memorial service was held at St. Gregory the Great Church in Warwick, Thousands of people attended to honor those who had lost their lives in this tragic fire. 
Three months later, the Station Family Fund was created to help victims, families, and survivors of the fire. And I'm thinking the money that you just mentioned probably good portion of it went to this fund, I would think so. Which I would hope so. Oh, yeah. The Station Fire Memorial Foundation was also created to help raise funds for a memorial park at the site of the fire. In 2012, the owner of the land, Ray Villanova, donated the land to the foundation, and in April 2016, construction started. That's amazing, to donate the land. Yeah, I know. Good for him, dude. I know. And I saw pictures of the memorial, and it's very beautiful. It is, and Mm -hmm. I actually have some in here, just in case you forgot. (laughs) By May 21st, 2017, the Station Fire Memorial Park was erected and dedicated to the victims of the fire. The park is one acre, and it includes a courtyard, gardens, and a granite monument with the names and birthdays of every victim. That's really nice. Yeah. Memorial services are held every February 20th to remember the people who lost their lives. In 2016, a Poke Stop was added to the park Mm-mm. for the game Pokemon Go, which I think no one plays anymore. But this obviously enraged the victims' families, rightfully so. Oh, man. That would make me so furious. Right. Did you ever play Pokemon Go? I did for like... A month, and then I stopped because I didn't care anymore. What? Dude, yeah. you so sick. I played it for a whole summer, and it was such oh, a fun like, summer. Maybe like three months. When I had my old job, my desk was a Pokestop. What? So I got to like level 10 in like two days. It was wow. awesome. Yeah. It was literally my desk at the old job when I worked for Sears. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Congrats, dude. Thanks. <laughs> Five months after the fire, Great White, the band, started a benefit tour, and they gave a portion of the proceeds to the Station Family Fund. They started each show with a prayer for the victims and the families affected by the fire. That's super nice. It is nice. The band stopped playing the song Desert Moon, which was the song they opened with that night. The other guitarist, Mark Kendall, who, if you remember, he was the other kind of forming bandmate. Mm-hmm. He is quoted as saying, we haven't played that song. Things that bring back memories of that night, we try to stay away from. And that song reminds us of that night. We haven't played it since then and probably never will. This was until August 17th, 2007, when the band had resumed playing the song. Oh, so they did play it. So they, yeah, they didn't play it for a while. Four years. Four years. And then they played it. On January 16th, 2013... Commemorating the 10th year anniversary of the fire, lead singer Jack Russell, the singer, not the dog, planned a benefit show in February and announced that all of the proceeds would go to the Station Fire Memorial Fund. Oh. Which is good, right? Yeah. When the foundation got word of this, they asked Jack Russell, the singer, not the dog, Mm -hmm. that their name be removed from you know, the title and what was happening because some of the families of the survivors still felt a little hostile towards the band. Okay. And I, yeah, I could see how they would think he was sort of promoting himself through a tragedy. I think they just didn't want to be necessarily associated with it. Yeah. But Jack Russell's management agreed that the show would be renamed, but they also stated that the proceeds would then be given to a different (gasps) charity, which... Whoa. Fuck you. That's a big yikes. 
Yeah. That's absolutely ridiculous. You know what? Fuck you, Jack Russell. Named after the world's most annoying dog-ass <laughs> fucking bitch. Once bitten, twice douchebag bitch. <laughs> Get him. Get him. A lot of people who were once fans are still very upset with the band, which I get. And I think as a victim of this horrific thing, you have every right to blame whoever the hell you want to. Oh, yeah. I mean, this was something that happened to them, and it should have never happened in the first place. And it's someone's fault. And if you want to blame the owners or the band, I think you have every single right in the world to. So preach then again some survivors and band members actually became really close after the fire because you know they now have this tragic thing in common and it kind of connects them Mm -hmm. they've had victims come on stage with them and do kind of like a memorial thing that way so i guess it just really kind of depends on the person like i said there's no right or wrong way to grieve no so Your, your feelings are always valid exactly The band ended up breaking apart from singer Jack Russell. Singer, not the dog. Dog Dog-ass looking motherfucker, bitch. (laughs) Due to his addictions that he had. He actually had before the fire, but then after the fire, it just, they got worse because it was very traumatic for him. That makes sense. Which is also very sad. Sure. Russell kept canceling on the band, so eventually they hired former XYZ frontman Terry Lewis, and then the group kind of split into two. One part was led by the guitarist Mark Kendall, and then the other was led by Jack Russell, the singer, not the dog. Mm. And from what I've gathered online, both of these, like, spinoff bands are still playing today in some capacity. Oh, okay. Do you think they ever play each other? Like a... Uh, like a like band a off? Like a <laughs> battle of the bands? From the fire came some new safety laws and code changes to obviously try to prevent anything like this from happening ever again. Governor Donald Cosseri declared a suspension on pyrotechnic displays at venues that held fewer than 300 people. Honestly, good call. Yeah. An emergency meeting was called by the NFPA, which is the National Fire Protective Agency. And they issued an emergency code amendment called the Tentative Interim Amendment, or TIA. On July 2003, the council issued the following recommendations, which then went into effect August 14th, 2003. The first one is that fire sprinklers must be installed in the new nightclubs and similar assembly occupancies in existing Mm. facilities that accommodate more than 100 people. Felt like that one was a long time coming. Yeah. So if you don't have sprinklers, you gotta install them. Good. Number two, the building owners are responsible for inspecting means of exit and ensuring there are no blockages or obstructions. Pretty standard here. Pretty standard. Doesn't happen probably still to this day. Oh, I can promise. Number three. One trained crowd manager must be present at all gatherings with 100 or more people, except religious services, which uh, they always get their own exemptions from everything, so that doesn't surprise me. I don't know. That's weird. Larger gatherings require a ratio of 1 to 250 people. I even feel like that's not enough. I know. Number four. Festival seating, which is when there's no seating available except for the ground, so you have to stand. 
So festival seating is prohibited for crowds over 250 unless a life safety evaluation is approved by the authority having jurisdiction and it's performed. Okay, that's a lot of people still. Yeah. Wow. So these new amendments were then issued for the National Standards Life Safety Code, but it's up to the state and the local jurisdiction to legally enact and enforce these codes. That's annoying. So they're there, but your state, fire marshals, everyone has to be great people to actually enforce it, which we can't always count on people to be great. What? (laughs) We can't? No. What? The station nightclub fire was the fourth deadliest fire at a nightclub in U.S. history, and it actually is the second deadliest in New England. Oh, wow. So maybe New England needs some new fire uh, codes no or shit. people in charge. I don't know. Just saying. Like some fire marshals with eyes. Right. Well, that was the station nightclub fire. It was. I'm super sad. Yeah. It's just a terrible, terrible thing. Mm-hmm. It's terrible. It's so sad. Yeah. And I think that we have earned a happy listener lore. Ooh, it was one happy? This is part two to the one that made me cry last week, right? Yes. Okay. I have been promised there will be no crying at this one. Okay. 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 So this comes from our sweet, sweet friend, Evan. Um, He wrote a book that I mistitled last week. Yeah, I was editing and I was like, oh, it's The Shade. Yeah. It's <laughs> you called said, uh, Spirits of Salem, but that's the yeah. series. Yes. So it's called The Shade, colon, Spirits of Salem. Yeah. Um, you can check it out on Amazon. It's very, very good. It's very good, yeah. I yeah. enjoyed it. I am looking out for book number two, so waiting here patiently, Evan. I heard we're in book number two. What? Whoa, was I not supposed to say that? Evan, I'm so sorry. <laughs> And we got a ton of really amazing feedback on this last one. People, yeah. I have maybe gotten 15. Eight, From the listener, Lord? 18 messages. Yeah, people saying they were crying. Yeah. Just it touched them. It's exactly what they needed at that moment. Yes. yes. So super special. Thank you. Thank you again for that, Evan. Seriously, thank you. Touched by an angel, Evan. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's get to listener lore and maybe brighten the mood a little bit. Yay. He just starts us with story number two, infestation, oppression, thankfully, minus the possession. Oh, it's starting with jokes. Mm. Perfect. In the fall of 2017, my future fiance, Courtney, shout out Courtney, and I moved in together. A momentous occasion as the try before you buy mindset was one we both heavily believed in. (laughs) I think that's great. It is. Some background on the property and its significance to the story. Back in the day, the 70s, I believe, my uncle on my mother's side had purchased the land from its aging caretaker. A double lot in the city, it has sold now for quite a pretty penny, comprised of a main three-story house, complete with a basement. There's also an attached but separate side unit in which we lived. Up until this August, when the sale on the property was pending. Before us, it had been rented to mostly friends of the family. My mother and father, even at one point, lived here before I was even a thing. They lived in what we call the apartment. 
It had been believed that back when the house was built in the 1800s, ooh, spooky, the main abode had been for the landowners and the servants or workers lived in the smaller apartment, then connected to the main house via a sense-sealed doorway between the living room areas. This is important later in the story. During one particularly rainy season in our town, back when my parents were living there, a part of the ground in the yard became saturated and began to droop. Fearing a sinkhole or other collapse that could jeopardize the house, my uncle called in city surveyors. Taking detailed and very careful scans of the area, they determined it to be a hollow room. Not a pit or a cave, but a man-made space. What? Further work showed it connected to the main house via the basement, but had been since walled off. It was suggested by the town's historical society that the house, fixated within a minute or so drive from Lake Ontario, served as a point on one's (gasps) final leg across the Underground Railroad. Fearing runaway slaves safely to Canada, where they could seek freedom from their oppressors. See, this is already a really nice story. Yeah, that's awesome. Also so spooky. I love this. Yeah. Some historical context. Rochester was just one city that played an important role in the railroad's clandestine success back in the day, and much of the history here is based on that aspect. Frederick Douglass and the establishment of his revolutionary newspaper, The North Star. Susan B. Anthony and her equal devotion to women's and black rights as well as structure after local structure being revealed through examination and excavation as important landmarks on the way to freedom across the lake. Definitely worth the trip for the historically and ethically minded. Add over. (laughs) A neat family hand-me-down of sorts. My fiancé and I made the place home. Made it our own. Made it comfy. Somewhere to come back to after a long workday. For a time, it was good. We enjoyed the time spent together in a place that was our own. During this time, however, something far darker began to take hold. We never asked any of the former tenants beside my mother, whom was always eager to share a paranormal experience of hers, if they had any issues while living in the apartment. Nothing was ever said, either, when we went to look at the place. My belief was everyone is sensitive, yet to different strengths and intensities, still stands. With the knowledge of the property we had, however, what ensued made a lot more sense. I, myself, never really had any issues with ghosts of the place. Only on one occasion, when I was napping before work, I was rudely awakened by an echoing, overtly masculine shriek, telling me simply to... Go! Otherwise, I only saw peepers. Shadows that just moved in and out oh, of my periphery. I see peepers all the time. Especially up here, dude. And disappearing when I looked in their direction. I felt presences, heard things, especially when we were in the process of moving out. But I feel that this was just the spirits reasserting themselves in the increasingly empty rooms of the place. They never bothered me. I even invited them to sit and stay with me while I wrote or gamed in our living room. Sadly, I was taken up on very few instances in this regard. Mm, You always are. I always ask for it, and they never come. 
You can't want it. I know. You got to not want it. I know. I know. My fiance, however, had a number of encounters, mainly in our bedroom, at night. Mm. On one occasion, she was woken up in the wee hours of the morning to see our room as it was, but with a large dresser in place of our average size one. And in front of one of the windows, a humanoid shape loomed there, easily mistakable for another shadow in the room. But she said that she felt it glaring at her, despite the lack of eyes, and she was unable to move. Unlike my peeper friends, it didn't disappear when she saw it. It lingered there until she woke up in a fit. This time, I wasn't disturbed, was only told about it the morning after. The second time was far more haunting for both of us, but for different reasons. Again, she awoke in the night, could hardly move, but attributed it to sleepiness. The room, however, was not our room, the same space, but how my mom had described hers being when she lived in the apartment. Fidgeting, my fiancé recalled kicking something off the bed, like a TV remote or something like that. Not uncommon, as she would often fall asleep with the TV still on. Same. When she did this, she heard a distinct guttural growling from the foot of the bed. Then again, unable to move further, in her ear. She tried to call out, but we all know how that goes in instances of sleep paralysis. Mm -hmm. She felt another presence on the bed, beside my own, and the sheer terror of it woke her and me. She reached over to me and asked if I could hold her. I did, and we fell back asleep like that. No other instances the rest of the night. Even though we've moved out since, we and those familiar with the various hauntings in the apartment have long suspected the dominating presence to be a hard-driving master or overseer. Not a slave driver, but someone with a stick up his ass about something. When we were in the process of moving, she was staying at her folks' place, not too far away, because our place, quote, didn't feel like home anymore. I opted to stay at the apartment. It was still ours, and we were paying for gas and electricity, etc., through the end of the month. One night when I was trying to sleep, I kept hearing a series of heavy footfalls in the living room and tiled kitchen area. My fiancé later attributed it to the house settling, as most of our bigger furniture was moved out or otherwise relocated. I never saw anything, but over the course of three or so hours... I literally lost count. I was so sleep-deprived. I heard the same pacing pattern back and forth. Heavy boots like would be worn on a farm back in ye olden times. <laughs> it stopped before dawn, but it was thoroughly, but I was thoroughly messed and slept a lot of the following day. Just not there. We, meaning I, performed several smudging rituals since the encounters began. It helped to temper the presences, but did not totally rid us of them. It never does. Not tied to the physical house, I think, but perhaps the ground upon which it stands. Or the hidden area under the yard, where the people were sheltered away from on their way to freedom. Mm -hmm. Either way, I did not see the presence as evil, just territorial. It was their land first, and we were intruding. Mm -hmm. But fuck that guy that scares the Jesus out of my fiancé. He was just sexist. <laughs> Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. And then he says, I love you so much, Evan. You're my best friend forever. Thank you so much for saying the name of my book right. Smiley face. 
Uh, that last part wasn't Evan, but we're just going to say it was because <laughs> Noelle likes to add things in for people when they write to us. That was really cool. So much fun. Loved it. And not as sad as the first one. So I'm glad I didn't have to cry this time. <laughs> I did the crying. That's true. It was good to save a happy one for a sad episode, I think. I think so, too. Yeah, yeah. that was good. Um, if anyone else listening has any other cool or creepy stories that you want to send us, yeah, please do. We want to hear from you. If you notice anything weird in your house Mm -hmm. that's a creepy thing so send that to us yeah or if you just want to try to make nicole or i cry yeah that's a new challenge too do that too it's gonna be hard for me so i don't know how you're gonna do it so (laughs) well congrats evan good luck good luck um you can send your stories to quite unusual pod at gmail.com you can also slippery slide into those there DMs, it is baby i love chatting with people yeah i love it so much so hit us up we're on all the social medias we're at quite unusual pod just basically anywhere and everywhere yeah. if you like what you heard please rate review and subscribe to the podcast really helps us out and we like to watch our reviews or stars go up so if you like us shoot us five star if you don't just don't say anything you know what whatever man you give us what you think we deserve honestly yeah give us what you think we deserve give it to me baby five stars five stars stars. yeah um can i plug something really quick please do is it blase to plug buying us a fucking drink are you saying that because i wrote it in capital letters buy us a fucking drink buy us a fucking drink look we can't go to bars we can't go to restaurants we can't do anything cool at all i have my eye on this six liter bottle of champagne (laughs) that they're currently selling at costco it's like 830 dollars but it's okay if 830 of you give us one dollar a piece less than one coffee a day yeah you can fund a millennial in these trying times that is covid two millennials yeah you know what if you guys fund us buying a six liter bottle of alcohol, not only will we drink it in one night, yeah. but we will film it and then also have someone call the cops because we will be dying of yeah. alcohol poisoning. Yeah. Well, it's just champagne. We'll be fine. So anyways, go to <laughs> buy me a coffee slash quite unusual pod, or you can look at the link in our bio of all the social meds um, and our source material. Always. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. you guys know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's going to be down there. And also, if you um, just want to talk to us about this, which is super sad, or Mm -hmm. anything, just let us know. Because we're always here. We always want to reach out. We always want to talk. And you should always celebrate the strange. And keep it unusual. Bye. Bye.